0: Hello and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I hope you're having a great start to the year, although it's still a bit chaotic. uh, There's all kinds of interesting world events happening around us, and it's also not easy to come back after taking a little bit of a break, decompressing, and then having to jump right back into the craziness of leading a company in the midst of COVID. So I hope that it is exceptional and that you're managing the craziness uh, as well. I am really happy to have spent some time skiing in fresh powder, but we have such unusual weather here that we've also had days that are warm enough to be able to run outside with a short sleeve shirt on, so we certainly are living in unusual times. Okay, let's talk about my guest today. I'm very excited to have him on the show. His name is Gabor George Burt. He is the global authority on creative transformation and future shaping strategy. Another strategist. I love strategists. He's the founder of the Slingshot Framework, which is an expansion of Blue Ocean Strategy. He was one of the core original experts of Blue Ocean Strategy which is one of the most profound strategic management books out there. If you haven't read it, you need to. It is still as relevant today as it was when it first came out many years ago. He launched the Slingshot Framework because he believes that we all need to engage in more creative thinking as business leaders to systematically reimagine market boundaries to fill needs that our customers have. He also talks a lot about how we need to become absolutely invaluable to our customers. I'll wait till we get into the interview to discuss the exact word he uses to describe it because it's such a good part of the interview. And uh, and I love his thoughts on this, especially because an IBM survey of 1500 CEOs worldwide found that creativity is considered to be the single most important leadership trait for future success. And this whole podcast, of course, is about being successful. So I know that you all are very interested to be able to hear different ways that you can be more creative uh, for yourself, for your careers, and for your companies. Gabor has shared the stage with many big names like Seth Godin and Sir Richard Branson and he was one of the three judges for the European Innovation Venture Award, and he sits on the board of the Global Innovation Institute. He works with executives of multinational, uh, multinational companies, uh, he's a subject matter expert, he works with government agencies and NGOs and startups, his, applying his slingshot framework to reimagine the market boundaries and create out growth strategies. He is so much fun. We have such a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy this interview. I certainly did. Hang tight and I'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited to have my guest today, Gabor George Burt uh this is going to be an awesome interview and we're going to jump right into it so welcome i'm so glad you're here gabor
1: thank you carrie it's great to be with you i look forward to our conversation
0: excellent excellent all right so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself who are you and what do you do
1: well uh i was born very young in fact uh for a brief moment i was the youngest person on earth and that's uh that's an interesting (laughs) place to start right and and uh you know, if you think about it, that's so true for everybody, right? But uh, but not something that most people realize. And and I and I actually mention that often when I give talks because one of the key themes uh, that uh, that I talk about is our inner childhood, right? In terms of how how uh, playful, curious, and adventurous we were, and that is still within every one of us today. But uh, but most of us don't ever think about that. So in terms of my background, I think, uh, uh, very briefly, what's relevant to mention is that I was one of the core original members, uh, and experts behind the concept of blue ocean strategy, uh, which is uh, a whole new way of understanding uh, corporate uh, uh, innovation strategy. And uh, based on that work, I founded my own framework called Slingshot. And Slingshot is in one sense the practical guide to creating blue oceans and and on its own it's about reimagining boundaries so in one word i would describe what i do as a, as an imaginationist so i help uh, uh, i help individuals and organizations uh, reimagine boundaries and to harness the power of creative transformation
0: i love this i was familiar with blue ocean strategy oh gosh probably before i started to work for stone age so 15 mm-hmm. 20 years ago i think mm-hmm. must have been when i first came across the book and i believe so much in the process that that we at stone age have gone through mm-hmm. a, a blue ocean strategy exercise and workshop and it mm-hmm. it led us to changing uh, in a pretty significant way and so mm-hmm. when i came across your sing- slingshot methodology and 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 be participating in the masterclass i was so excited because it was such an eye-opening workshop mm-hmm. to really rethink your business in a way that you've never thought possible. So I'm so excited to dive into this with you.
1: Absolutely, and I, and, and I, that's another connection point between the two of us. When I heard that yeah. uh, that you did that, uh, yeah, it immediately uh, makes me think that uh, that you understand all these key concepts. You know that I. That I bring to companies and, and, to, and to leadership teams. Uh, it is, it's, it's, it's extremely exciting. And especially now uh, in the wake of, of, of COVID, uh, when, when the normal or the status quo as we knew it no longer exists, uh, everything is to be reimagined. Uh, understanding how to do that is critical.
0: Yeah. So one of the interesting parts of your story that I'd like to dive into before we get into the interview is that you immigrated from Hungary when you were 12 years old. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to understand how that experience felt for you. What what was that like and how did that shape who you are today and how you approach this idea of reimagining boundaries?
1: Sure. No, you're right. And that was a a major part of. Uh, of who I am today. And it's uh, interesting that you use the word immigrated uh, because you know, I didn't have much choice. I was still just 12 years old, so I was really just brought along. Uh, but, but yes, my, my mother uh, uh, remarried and, uh, uh, and brought me uh, with her to, to, the, to America. And uh, at that time, uh, Hungary was still a communist country so growing up in the capital city, speaking Hungarian, learning uh, Russian and, and French, not speaking a word of English, and then being brought over to the East Coast and dropped off in a uh, small university town called Durham, New Hampshire, uh, was uh, an extreme, uh, an extreme change, um, and uh, and yeah, I, I think it did have a, a profound impact on me because as such an outsider, you immediately start questioning right so you start noticing the differences you you start to uh, to see uh cultural uh manifestations and 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 all those things opened up all kinds of uh, of things in me whether it was a, a curiosity about travel an interest in understanding why things work the the way they do and 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 why people think the way they do so that led me to uh, major in psychology in um, in uh, in college Uh, it also made me very self-sufficient and self-reliant as you can imagine trying to fit into to uh, to a uh, uh, a new environment at age 12 and then the second part of that story is that I finished business school in 1989 uh, when the Iron Curtain came down so I actually went back to Budapest at that time and uh, participated in by establishing and running my own uh, software company in what I think is one of the most fascinating uh, time and and place in in human history, right? During that decade, the 90s, the entire region of uh, Central and Eastern Europe transformed socially, culturally, economically, and politically, and, and mostly peacefully. And and to have been able to not just witness that, but be an active participant in that was again, just, uh, just really profoundly uh, uh, impactful on, on uh, what I do and how I think.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine coming from a from a communist you know, upbringing, even though young um, in age and not necessarily fully understanding the impact coming to a democracy like America and then being mm-hmm. able to participate in creating democracy uh, through the, you know, through starting a business and, and hiring employees and, and adding value. I can only imagine how exhilarating and also probably a little bit scary that was.
1: And you're right. And that's so, so, so good that you picked up on that, because, you know, if you weren't there at the time, all you would hear all are the positives, right? That finally communism is over, democracy uh, has come to, to Eastern Europe. And that's glossing over the reality, right? The fact is that that part of the world did not have a history of democracy. So they've never experienced that. Before communism, it was, uh, uh, it was a monarchy. So that had to be started from the ground up and there were some serious challenges and difficulties. So, so you're right. I mean, having, having, uh, uh, having lived through that experience that and, and, and being part of that uh, was, was really, really uh, meaningful. And, and of course it shapes what I do today and this whole notion of reimagining boundaries because that's what we were doing, right? Everything we we're doing at that time uh, during that decade in Eastern Europe was was complete change and it was a complete transformation of everything that that was there before
0: yeah Uh, I think I think that's a great point because we do tend to gloss over the difficulties especially you know the american values when we talk about oh democracy is this this fantastic thing that that we want to spread across the world but when you have to experience going through you know it's kind of like the wormhole right from one entirely different way of of looking at the world to another way that is painful it's like metamorphosis right you're it's rebirth so to speak So I can imagine that uh, it's easy. It's easy, I think, for people to 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 think like, oh, that's a great thing. It was uh, a liberation of so many different countries and so many people throughout Europe. But it was definitely not easy going through that kind of change is very, very difficult.
1: And and Let me give you one example of that. So uh, uh, Hungarians or you could more generally Central Europeans are very creative by by nature. Right. So if you look back at uh, whether it's science, art, uh, uh, literature, um, the, the number of uh, famous innovators or personalities through history is really well concentrated uh, in that part of the world. Uh, and uh, when uh, uh, the Iron Curtain fell and I established my company, I had some some young employees and I thought that this this background, this cultural advantage of creativity would be some of the the things that uh, that they would bring with them, but it was really the opposite. So so that creativity was really kind of uh, educated out of them, in the former system, and they all they were doing is looking for instruction, and they were afraid to do anything on their own, and so that that sort of uh, re engagement of creative thinking had to be reacquired and le- relearned. So exactly. So so it was really a kind of a, a even on a on a personal or a psychological level a, a, just a, just kind of a great experiment
0: so how did you do that right so all of a sudden you become aware like oh wow <laughs> I'm going to have to teach this did you have yeah. any idea of how to even get started what did you do well
1: and and, and this is an interesting connection to our conversation because at the time uh, when the first articles came out, about Blue Ocean Strategy. And that time, it was still just called Value Innovation. Uh, In the late 1990s, one of the first articles appeared in Harvard Business Review. And at the time, I was still running my company in Budapest, and I wrote an article uh, in response to Professor Kim's article and Professor uh, Marborn's article that was published in HBR precisely on this, to say this is all great, but my experience here in uh, in Hungary is that uh, uh, the the young generation is not really able to engage creative thinking, and some of the things that I am doing to encourage and nurture that include just more of a hands-on approach, right, so to, 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 to kind of liberate and to encourage them to let go of this rigid Uh, thinking that they need instruction, right? So when we do that, when we break that down and give them smaller tasks or assignments and say, now you run with this, and then we then we review it together, then uh, step by step, that could be uh, that could be reprogrammed. And that's exactly what I did.
0: Oh, Oh, what a great story. Thanks for sharing that. All right, let's jump into talking about strategy. I love Mm -hmm. strategy uh, and I have had to figure out how to be good at it. I've made the mistake that so many people make in thinking that an operational plan is a strategy and it's not. So being that it's so crucial, why do so many of us get it wrong?
1: Well, because there's a fundamental change in our environment. So I like to reference uh, two things. One is an article that appeared in uh, fortune magazine in 2006 and the year is important because just six years before in the year 2000 fortune magazine named jack welch as the manager of the century basically saying that what he stood for in terms of his management principles and practices are the ideal way to run companies six years later an article appears called the new rules put out by fortune saying Sorry, Jack, you gotta move over. Everything that you did was perfect for the last century, but this is an entirely different environment. And it actually listed a couple of those old rules and the replacement rules. And one of those is be number one or number two in everything you do. And the new rule is no, create something new, right? One of the other ones is uh, uh, big dogs own the street. No, being big can bite you, flexible is more important than size, right? So there's a fundamental shift going on. And then uh, a few years later, IBM did a study of, a a global study of I think 1200 CEOs from across 60 industries asking, what do you think is the number one quality you need to have for successful leadership into the future? And the number one answer was creativity. Right. And at the same time, all these leaders said it's the quality that we're not very good at. We know we need to get better at it, but we don't know how to embrace it for ourselves and how to nurture it for our organization. And that is the uh, the reason and, and the answer to your question is that 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 the whole idea of strategy and future shaping. Um, understanding of, of how to run businesses has fundamentally changed because we live in a world uh, that is uh, characterized by uncertainty, uh, continuous motion, continuous change. And managing in that is very different than maintaining the status quo and, and just keep building on the foundation uh, like uh, like companies like uh, uh, Jack Welch's uh, General Electric did uh, Last last century. So,
0: yep, yeah, uh, I love that word creativity. And I've act, uh, people have asked me, you know, what do I think is 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 the key trait for being to be successful? And of course, there's the hard work and and the vision and the plan. But the number one thing I say is curiosity,
1: mm. because
0: it's difficult to be. You can't be creative if you're not curious. If you are not exploring the world around you and trying to understand why things are the way they are, and why does it work this way? And what if we did it it this way? Uh, And so I think that that curiosity and creativity goes hand in hand. So I always tried to leave with curiosity because I believe that sparks an incredible amount of creativity and i would not have you know i would i would agree with you i wouldn't have said ge back in those days was necessarily a key a curious company they were a money generating machine (laughs) and creativity and disruption can be dangerous um, Mm -hmm. when you're in that situation
1: exactly i I also love the word curiosity and and, you know the symbol of my whole my whole uh platform is slingshot And, and to me slingshot is the perfect connection and and reminder of our childhood sense of adventure curiosity uh, and uh, and uh, and creativity so to me it's 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 all very closely related and and a special you know kudos to you that you think like this when when uh, when you're in a uh, currently a uh, you know b2b business an industrial business and, and to realize that that you also have the ability uh, in fact, the mandate as, as, as the leader of that company to explore and to go beyond is, is, is excellent. And, and as I said, uh, uh, that's, that's a foreign concept to, to most uh, business leaders who have been in that position for over 10 years, um, not just in, in B2B industries, but in B2, B2C industries as well.
0: Well, I think it's such a it's such a, a, a relevant topic because you're right. So many people are afraid to be curious and to push um, push their companies into new spaces that might I don't know disrupt, revolutionize. Because when you're looking at short term performance as mm-hmm. the key measure, then it's really hard to say, "Ooh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this risk for the long term payoff." And so. We've been conditioned, I think. Leaders have been conditioned to not take yeah. risks because we are measured on short term performance. And luckily, Stone Age is an employee owned company with two founders who are by nature. Uh, disruptively creative and curious, and so I feel really fortunate that I came in at a young age to a company like that where I could really express my curiosity mm-hmm. and creativity and not have the pressures of short-term performance uh, that would really hurt our overall you know, long-term creativity and positioning mm-hmm. in the marketplace.
1: I think that is great. That That's a really special and, he- and healthy environment. I also think, and, and, and I'm curious what you think of this, that this is actually the to me the natural state so what, what's, what's great about curiosity creativity um, and continuously asking questions is, is is that to me that's our natural state right so that that to me is when you really liberate people working for you and with you to really uh, engage their, their their personalities their their uh, their own talents um, and to fully contribute. Rather than uh, a very structured environment and just just following uh, following orders, and, and again just going full circle to our, in our conversation, that was really one of the key downfalls of communism too, right? Which was uh, which was not a de- uh, which was a uh, not a demand e- economy, but really a a supply economy. Everyone was told how much to produce, and that's how much you produced or try to at least, and there was no uh, wiggle room for uh, creativity, innovation, or or curiosity
0: yeah and i think that those those traits you know t- to focus on they do as i say the orders it just it tramples the human spirit because yep. all of us have a desire to feel part of something we all have a desire to create value and to be valued and to be heard and seen and curiosity and teaching people to question can be drawn out as simply simple as asking well what do you think and we just don't do that so often whether it's we don't care or we don't think we have time or yes. we think we're right or we just don't know and mm-hmm. if we just stopped and asked each other that simple question well what do you think a little yeah. more often we would probably I don't draw curiosity and creativity out of people so much more.
1: Absolutely. And that's really also uh, the way that I uh, I work with uh, with my uh, partner companies, clients, and, and organizations is that I'm not a consultant, so I, I wouldn't come in and tell you what to do. What I do is I liberate the thinking of your team um, beyond what they thought they were possible that they they were possible of of considering. So one of the things I do is I have a six question test and uh, I do a wager to say and you may remember if I did this in our in our master class uh, to say that uh, I bet no one uh, will get more than two out of the six questions right because you are you have these self-imposed mental boundaries of what you think is possible for your business and and for your market and for your customers. And invariably I win that bet and they're very simple questions like, what business are you in? What do you think should be the goal of innovation? Uh, Who do you think are your most relevant competitors? And that is the, of the journey that's mind opening right so when when you say that that in terms of enabling people to ask questions to be curious they just need that impulse they just need that that spark and that's what i bring and then i i share with with them a methodology to now systematically being able to explore and uh, and to uh and to uh follow your curiosity
0: Yeah, I like this. And I like it in your book that you talk about how even the most successful businesses have these self-imposed boundaries and Mm -hmm. that they hold them back and they might not even know it. So, you know, can you describe a little bit more of what that means and how you walk your clients through solving this problem?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, one uh, one example of that is and I mentioned this as one of the questions is, you know, what business are you in? So the uh, the uh, response of most people is to describe what they do, right, and and to reference something that they sell, something that they make, or service that they provide. But that in itself is leaving a huge um, a huge market space completely unexplored, which is what is beyond that that uh, that product, that service, that that market space. So what I push them to do in that particular instance is to define their business their value to their st- their their target audience as widely as possible right so one of my uh, my favorite uh, quotes that uh, that i reference is by a former army psychologist who said that the human equation is to multiply joy and divide pain joy shared is joy multiplied pain shared is pain divided it's a really nice statement but The reason that it's so relevant is because I push every organization I work with to think of themselves as being in the business of multiplying joy and dividing pain for their target audience, right? and that's such a powerful mission statement right you're no longer constrained by a particular product a particular service a particular industry or market space what you are talking about is a relationship with your target audience and and being so close to those people that that you are understanding what they feel pain pain by and 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 you celebrate joys and things that you do do for them to to uh, uh, that, that makes make them excited, that that bring them delight, and that's the difference, right? So that's an example of of, uh, of how this works and, and why it's such a powerful, liberating way of uh, of thinking.
0: Yeah, I love it. Um, this is exactly what we came up with, the the this mindset with the Stone Age Assurance process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Promise. And it was all of this idea. And, and I we didn't use the word joy, bring our customers joy, but I love that because I think that that's so important. But it was all mm-hmm. around this, like, how do we make sure that we don't leave them anything to worry about? They know when they work with Stone Age that we've got their back. And mm-hmm. it has really just infiltrated our company and our customers mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. it. It's this whole yeah. idea that it's the promise that we make and we are going yeah. to do everything we can so that you don't have to worry about this portion of your job. Yeah. And we really looked at it through that framework as to yeah. you know, how do you really solve your customer's toughest problem and make their lives a little less stressful <laughs> than they did before they used your product Absolutely. or service.
1: And, and what you just said it sounds so obvious right it sounds so simple i mean isn't that the purpose of every business right but what's amazing is that 95 percent of businesses get it wrong right they just don't focus on what they should be focused on whether it's because their sites are on their competition whether it's on technology whether it's a misguided understanding of customers so those that get it um, have a huge advantage which is why companies that I work with, on average, increase their, uh, their growth trajectory by 300%. So, so it's really powerful. And, and one of the other ways I kind of stimulate this sort of thinking is simply to ask, uh, if, you were to, if you were to go to your customers and ask, who is my favorite corporate partner, right? Or brand, if it's a B2C business, uh, would you be in their top five, okay? And if the answer is no, then then why not? I mean, isn't that aren't, aren't those your your most relevant competitors who are keeping you away from being considered as as one of the one of the most important uh, 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 relationships in 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 your customers' mind? And if you are one of the top five, are you number one, right? So can you be that one brand, that one company that your Uh, your customers associate with positive feelings, with the feelings of joy and delight. And if you are number one, what else can you do for them? Right? Because now you have their attention, you have their emotional connection. There's no limit to what you can do to expand that relationship. And, and that's where it gets really, really exciting. Once you go down this path, there's really almost no limits.
0: Oh, I love this. This is so, this so resonates with me. Our mission statement, which we had a lot of debate around, uh, and I finally prevailed, and I don't usually like to prevail, but I so believe that this is the right one, is our mission is to make our customers say, why would I choose anyone but Stone Age? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes against so many of the, you know, the obvious, the typical mission statements that are out there. But I was like, yeah. that's why we show up every single day. This is like a rallying cry to all of us. It makes it really easy for every employee in the company to go, am I, is, is what I'm doing, no. would that make a customer say, oh yeah, why would I choose anybody but Stone Age? Right. And it, it's, we just put it out there. I was like, we're going to put it yeah. out there front and center and it's going to be what we all focus on with all of our effort and all of our service and all of our joy, and mm-hmm. now our customers know that. You know, our customers on social media is like, yeah, this is why I say I wouldn't choose anybody but Stone Age, and yeah. even having having that kind of clarity around it for the entire company and putting yeah. it out there for our customers, I think made a huge change in yeah. the way that we viewed customer service and in well, our strategy.
1: That's perfect. So I'm I'm going to have to use uh, your example as a case study. We're going to write we're going to write it up because the. Uh, uh, that, that is that is excellent, and that is ex- exactly what I'm talking about, and and what uh, what what, uh, what you you uh, you should be doing, and companies should be doing, and you know to to uh, uh, push put it in in an even more extreme or uh, or perhaps uh, uh, ambitious uh, uh, context. Um, there is a word that has been created, and it's uh, an official ailment that you can go to a a psychiatrist to be treated for, and that word is nomophobia, which means the fear or anxiety of being without your cell phone, okay? So here's the challenge. Uh, What would it take for your customers, who as you described, are already feeling a close attachment to you, what would it take for them to create a word to express their fear or anxiety of ever being without Stone Age, right? So there it is. It's I love way it. Of the, the same challenge. So what would that take, and what would that word be, right? So they could actually go to a uh, to a psychiatrist and uh, and, and and have a, a session to be treated for it, to to, to, to be calmed <laughs> down because because it's just uh, uh just just causing them too much uh, stress. Um,
0: Oh, I love it. I am. So I'm so going to do that exercise tonight. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. All right, so let's talk a little bit about customer pain points. In your book, you talk about identifying customer pain points and turning them into points of infatuation. And I love the word infatuation. And I'm super curious as to why you picked that word. So can you describe what that means? And how should leaders go about doing this?
1: Yeah, so infatuation is a very special word, uh, because a lot of people talk about joy and delight and amazing and wowing customers, and those are all great. But what makes the word infatuation stand out is that it means two things simultaneously. One is that uh, it's a strong emotional reaction, but the other is a time element, that it's temporary, that it's fleeting. And that is key, because... Whenever you do something for your customers that they love, that they react to and say thank you, very shortly after, that will become the new normal. That will become the new status quo. So after that moment, each time they will be less and less excited by it. And after a while, they'll expect it. And then from then on, they will want to be excited by something new again. And so infatuation captures this cyclicality between you and your target audience. And therefore, I actually coined the, 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 the phrase inf- infatuation interval, which captures this state of infatuation that from that moment, that first moment starts to decrease. And after that, it transitions to what I call the entitlement period in which uh, there's no longer an emotional charge because everybody sees it as the, as the normal. And in fact, that's the time when the customers become critical, and so what you want to do, your mandate is to keep your customers in in a continuous cycle of infatuation intervals, right? So now you understand both the timing and the uh, and the content of how you should be innovating. So that's the idea, and uh, and a quick example of this this transition from. In a point of uh, or a pain point to a point of infatuation, or a fun example, uh, is the square watermelon, which is uh, a real thing. There is such thing as a square watermelon, although it seems strange, and it's uh, in existence in Japan. And the story of that is that Japan is a uh, relatively small island with a lot of people, so uh, so space is scarce, and uh, Watermelon is, is a very tasty, uh, well-liked uh, fruit, but the biggest uh, problem with it is its uh, awkward shape, right? Which does not make it very uh, easily storable, either in the, uh, the, the supermarkets or in people's homes. So uh, a, a while ago, a group of farmers in, in Japan said, what if we make them square? Most everyone immediately rejected. That's a st- stupid idea. Can't be done, etc. They went ahead anyways and discovered it was as simple as just planting a watermelon seed in soil inside a cardboard box. And it would just grow up taking on the shape of that square box. They brought it on the market. It was really well received. It's a premium product. So people pay extra to have a square watermelon. So how does this represent the concept? Well, the biggest drawback, the reason that people didn't buy a watermelon was its shape prior to the square watermelon. Now it is the reason that they buy it because they're paying a premium for the ones that are uh, square shaped So that's an illustration of how you focus in on what everybody else missed. In this case, hey, we can actually do something about uh, the shape of the watermelon and make that the key selling point. So that's, that's the idea.
0: I love it. And what a great description of why you picked the word infatuation. I definitely wanted to know that and I could not agree with you more. Right? It's always that constant that constant cycle and and you know, race to keep people to keep yourself relevant. And I right. like that I like the term of the infatuation cycle because we we always are going to have to figure out how do we keep our current customers and attract new customers, and it's never going to be by just doing the same old thing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the yeah. beauty of that is that when you're emotionally connected, your uh, your uh, customers will be that much more forgivable, that much more kind to you. So you may actually screw up. You may be late on an order or miss something, but, but that will not... Uh, uh interrupt your relationship because it's on an emotional basis.
0: So let's talk a little bit about innovation. Um, mm-hmm. do you think the most powerful innovations are entirely new ideas or combinations of existing products and services? And why do you think that?
1: yeah, so so my my vote is in the in the second camp. So I of course, uh, uh, entirely new ideas are possible, but, uh, uh, but absolutely not necessary, and and that's the, the the big point that I make is that really powerful innovations are possible simply by unlocking new combinations of already existing components, which is a what I even call the innovation shortcut, because it allows you to uh, to uh, be less risky, to uh, use less resources, uh, to be much quicker right, because you're not inventing, you're not the first to do something, but you're the first to combine things that haven't been combined before. And that's, and when you look back in the history of business, this is basically the the, the formula for, for many of the most important innovations, whether it was the Model T, Henry Ford, Henry Ford, before before the Model T, uh, the uh, the automobile in terms of its design and functionality already existed. Uh, Ransom olds already started using uh, assembly line uh, uh, for uh, in the automotive industry. so what uh, what Henry Ford did is very successfully take all those pieces and combine with an easily replicable, very uh, affordable design and uh, and that was uh, the genesis of the Model T, uh, t- in today's uh, uh, world, uh, An easy example is Starbucks. You know, Starbucks is, I think, by now a $30 billion company. Did did they invent anything? No. They combined a a coffee culture or cafe culture that has been around for centuries with an easily replicable fast food model. And that's that's Starbucks. Uh, Apple, you know, uh, Steve Jobs uh, uh, didn't, uh, didn't invent technology but harnessed technology and combined it with beautiful design, artistic and easy to use customer uh, interface. So that's the idea, is that uh, in whatever business you are in, those shortcuts, those combination interfaces are available to you. And, and if you take advantage of that, you know it's, it's a very powerful way of innovating.
0: And I like that because it makes it slightly less intimidating because <laughs> I think that, that it can be overwhelming to think, oh, I have to innovate or as a company, we have to innovate and so many innovation initiatives fail Mm -hmm. and do you think that's just because people think of innovation solely as new ideas or or you know complete disruption rather than making tweaks and Mm -hmm. and combining what you already have
1: yeah and, and so that's one of my six questions what do you think should be the goal of innovations precisely because it's something that most people get wrong right and again the answer is deceptively simple uh, but the reason they get it wrong is because they uh, they think of innovation as having to do with new technology. Or they look at uh, ways to uh, uh, to perform something better, uh, to be more efficient in production. So it's an internal focus rather than external. Or they're looking at their competition. How can we do something better than, than they're doing? So they just have the wrong focus. And, and once you have that, uh, then um, then everything is off. So uh, a really uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, eye-opening example of that is Iridium. So Iridium, I don't know if you remember or, or, or you know the story, but they were started by Motorola in 1998 as the first satellite-based uh, mobile telecommunication network. So instead of tower-based, satellite-based, meaning that the idea was that because... Uh, because the, uh, uh, the satellites would orbit the earth, you would be in continuous uh, contact. So you didn't need to rely on towers in terms of receptivity. Great concept, they said, we're gonna be the first, but the only thing they missed is that it was completely uh, unpractical. So their devices were huge, very expensive, and most of all, they didn't work inside. So you had to go outside to be in direct line of communication. So uh, Motorola invested, I think, $6 billion into this, blinded by we're gonna be the first rather than will this be embraced by customers. And within a year, uh, the the whole thing was shut down and they sold it to the military for $30 million. So $6 billion investment sold for 30 million because they got the innovation uh, basics wrong.
0: I think that's an excellent example. Is it innovative? if nobody wants to use it or nobody wants to buy it right i mean there's certainly the the notion that there's value in pursuing an idea for ideas sake and and what you've learned from that process but sure. is it really innovative if it's not useful i don't know what are your thoughts
1: yeah well you know you can have other reason to innovate you could be an artist and 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 do things uh, or an academic and but if you're if you're talking about business and, and you're the uh the leader of a uh, organization, a company, and your mandate is to maximize the value of that, then you can't afford to miss like that. Then then you yeah. you can't be doing things like this. Uh, so yeah, that, that's it. Obviously, yeah, you can, you can, there's many other reasons why you'd want to innovate. But if we're talking business, and business success, then, um, then you need to absolutely focus on what your customers will appreciate.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm glad that you brought this up just for my own personal growth and 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 stretching of my mind because I am so business focused and I do have a very you know hands-on tact tactical product that it's hard mm-hmm. not to think of innovation outside of that. But I'm very much of a believer that our lives are are improved so much. We have such a higher quality of life because of thinking and reading and art and music and we can stifle those things in the pursuit of usefulness practicalness let's make money with this and it really isn't a holistic life if you're not um if you're not you know enjoying all of those aspects and it does take innovative people pushing Mm -hmm. boundaries in all aspects of creativity to you know to bring that kind of joy to people and so i want to explore that idea of innovation in academia and innovation in art and yeah. and and not just stay so focused on how my company is innovating
1: that's that's great and and uh, and that's uh, absolutely something that uh, excites me as well so when we're talking about reimagining boundaries i am just as involved in doing that for the government sector for academia um, and, uh, and on a personal level, I have all kinds of interests that I pursue. And I think, I think that's the, the core of all that is uh, the central notion of reimagining boundaries, because that's not limited to, to business. In fact, the subtitle of my book is Reimagine Your Business, Reimagine Your Life, right? Because it's just a way of how you look at yourself and your surrounding and your relationships, your target audience, as you define it. It doesn't just have to be your business target audience, but anyone that you're in a relationship with. And, uh, and how do you continuously uh, make that fresh and, and, and how do you uh, yeah. uh, continue to push those boundaries? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and you, know, you think about some of the systematic f- failures that we have in society, And it's around things that are institutionalized, where there's not necessarily a lot of innovation happening. So, you know, you're looking at like how COVID is going to be disrupting education, the education system, you know, it's going to be different. And it needed to change a long time ago because it isn't equitable and it shouldn't cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to get... high quality education and so you know how are all of those systems going to be break down and how are we going to innovate in new ways it's not necessarily about a product it's really about saying the the way that this has been institutionalized is not working (laughs) and we're going to be forced to do something different
1: absolutely that's why it's kind of an exciting time if if we can look at it that way because it's forcing all these issues to the surface so we can't ignore them anymore right
0: yeah. Well, I think it comes down to, you know, if it seems so hard, right? And, and inertia gets us stuck. And so when you you kind of can compare it to the transition from communism to democracy, right? There had to be something that was really bad that was happening. It really wasn't working, that it is forcing no. you to say This is going to be more painful to stay on this track than it is to go through the change of getting on this new one. And COVID has done that for so many things Uh, and realizing like the pain of of status quo is 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 not going to it's going to be easier to change. It's going to be more fruitful to change, even though it's painful than it is staying the course.
1: Yeah, no, that, that is. Yeah. It's an absolute catalyst. And that's true just yeah. with, with companies. So it's much easier to think about reimagining and transformation if you know you have to, right? That you have no choice yeah. than when you're doing well, uh, when you can ignore it. Um, so so that's absolutely the case. So so that is true. And, and that's why, to me, this is a special moment because I want to help as many uh, people and organizations as possible to uh, to embrace this as an opportunity rather than as a um, as a crisis.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. All right, so as we wrap things up with this interview, I have two more questions for you. Okay. So the name of my podcast is Reflect Forward, which has a lot of meanings to me, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, what does Reflect Forward mean to you?
1: Yeah, I really like that, uh, that, that, that word. And again, I think it's like a combination of two things that people wouldn't naturally put together, right? So it's the innovation shortcut. And that combination you know for me reflecting means that number one you have your senses open right so you're looking thinking um wondering uh asking questions uh, uh, in the form of curiosity but it's also reflecting means that you're thinking about the the present or maybe even the past right and then forward is about the future so to me that's a great uh, uh, kind of connection to my whole brand slingshot because the mechanics of a slingshot is that you pull back right you're creating tension against this elastic which to me is about your current mental boundaries right now and when you do that you can launch uh the projectile forward so by doing that you're now embracing all kinds of new possibilities for the future so I like reflect forward because of you know th- those two things, that it's about thinking and, and exploring boundaries, but also the interplay of those two words remind me of the mechanics of a slingshot.
0: Yeah, good, I love it. That's a brilliant answer. <laughs> I love it, I love it, I love it. All right, and finally, uh, what's the best piece of advice that you can give to leaders who want to be exceptional at what they do?
1: all right so so i'm going to uh, do that by referencing a quote um and that's from the world of sports and i often do that because sports is a great kind of parallel to life and to business and, and it's a quote that was said uh, a while ago by wayne gretzky who was the greatest uh, hockey player of all time and and in his sport he was so much better than anybody else that uh, he in his life in his career had three 3,000 points, meaning goals that he scores or, or, or assists that he gave. And the next best had 2,000 points, which was his teammate, so benefited from pay, playing with uh, with uh, uh, Wayne. Um, and uh, and so he was once asked, uh, what makes you so great, that you are so much better than anybody else in, in, in a sport that everybody is fairly uh, close in terms of talent? He said it's simple. I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going to be. Right? So, what he said is simple. It's my vision. It's my focus. I don't go to where the action is today. I don't look at w- what is happening today. I try to project where the action will be in the future in a couple of seconds. And I will be. first one there. I'm going to already be moving there and positioning myself there. So I think that's a really good piece of advice for any business leader is to always have your sights on not just the present in the sense, you know, reflect forward, but what is on the horizon? What is next? What is beyond? And how can I take advantage of that? How can I lead my company to be the first in that space? And especially right now, because of COVID, it's the Optimal time to think like that? You know, what is beyond COVID? What will life like, lifestyles and work styles be like? And how can I bring my company to bring something special that really will uh, bring solutions to what people uh, will be looking for in that new environment?
0: Yeah, brilliant. Great answer. Excellent. All right. So, how can people find you?
1: Uh, well, the best way to find me is uh, my website. So that's just my name, uh, gaborgeorgebert.com, uh, on LinkedIn as well. I'm very accessible, and uh, and connect me with that. And the other thing that I'll make, uh, I'll, I'll offer is that uh, if you want a copy, meaning the listeners or the or the watchers of our uh, conversation want a copy of my book Slingshot, which by the way is only privately available. Uh, if you want an e-copy, just uh, reach out to me on 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 LinkedIn and we'll send you a copy so that's probably the best best place to reach uh, to find me
0: fantastic well gabara thank you so much for this fascinating conversation i completely enjoyed myself i don't want to stop but uh i know we both have things to do so thank you so much for coming on the show today i really really appreciate it Thank you for
1: having me obviously it takes two to have a great conversation and you're a wonderful uh partner in this and I'm so uh, impressed by everything you shared and that you're doing uh, with your company because again it just uh, perfectly represents uh, everything that uh, that I think is important and I talk about so so this was a great uh, uh, great lesson uh, and uh, conversation for me as well
0: I know, we're kindred souls. I really do feel that way. Like everything you say, I'm like, yes. (laughs) We need to get that message out there. So uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to work with you in the future, so thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Carrie. All
0: right, yep. All right, everybody, I'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Gabor. I had fun interviewing him, talking about creativity and curiosity and philosophizing. Okay, on to my question for this episode. This came from a LinkedIn follower who said, I understand to be highly successful, you have to be mentally tough, but I don't know how to go about strengthening my mental toughness. Smiley face. What is your advice? So I love this question and uh, developing mental toughness is something that I think we all need to to do more of. Uh, And it reminds me of watching The Last Dance, which is the documentary on Michael Jordan's career. I love this, I am a super fan of this documentary. And one of the things that really, I don't know, that I really liked the most about it was the story of Jordan's mental toughness. Many athletes had the talent to compete with him, but what set him apart was his mindset. He would not accept failure. He would not settle for anything less than pushing through all obstacles. So this documentary made me reflect on my own leadership attributes, particularly my mental toughness. And I asked myself a lot of questions around, do I have the ability to overcome all obstacles? Can I push past failures? Can I face down adversity with positivity and confidence? What is the strength and resiliency of my own mind? So I started to ponder, how do I develop this mental toughness and become an exceptional leader so that I can overcome the setbacks and the mistakes and the burnout and the stress that I feel on any given day? I know that to be mentally tough, I have to banish self-negative talk and push aside doubt, but those are very real emotions. So I set a pot on a journey to figure out how do I do this? So I started with positive mindset. First and foremost, you have to have a positive mindset. This does not mean that you need to convince yourself that life is always filled with rainbows and unicorns or ignore negative feelings, but you must believe that no matter what life throws at you, there's always a silver lining and that you will always be okay. That you will actually come out stronger because of the challenge. It not, beca- not despite it. And having a positive mindset also means that you see the best as- in others and you believe in positive outcomes. If you are saying, oh, this will never work, I'll never succeed, this person is holding me back, uh, that is not going to help you develop mental toughness. All right, second, you have to believe in yourself. I love this quote from an American surgeon. I believe it was a plastic surgeon, so meh, but it's still really good. So Maxwell Maltz said, Low self-esteem is like driving through life with the handbrake on. I couldn't agree more. You cannot have low self-esteem and be mentally tough, at least not the kind of mental toughness that we're talking about here. Mentally tough people believe in themselves and they are self-confident. They don't think that they might succeed. They know that they will succeed. Sure, we all have moments of self-doubt. There's no doubt. But when you do, take action and push through it. You will gain confidence by doing hard things over and over and over again. Third, do not be a victim. You can never blame others for what life throws at you. Instead, you must take full responsibility for everything that happens in your life. And I mean everything. Sure. I know that things happen that are outside of your control, but you can still take responsibility by asking yourself, how did I get into this situation? How am I in a position that I got hurt or let down or I made a mistake? That's how you can start to look to take responsibility. And this is really important because victims are always trying to deflect or or blame somebody else. or you know, push that responsibility to others, and that is very disempowering. So instead, when you say, hey, I'm responsible for my life, even the stuff that's out of my control, you are self-empowering. So step into this responsibility and take charge of your life. You will, you will build your confidence and you will overcome those limiting self-beliefs when you refuse to be a victim of your circumstance. Fourth, challenge yourself. I know it's cliche to say you've got to get out of your comfort zone, but you do. (laughs) Relentless pursuit of greatness is not a linear path. There will always be ups and downs, and the more obstacles you overcome and the failures that you face up to, the more resiliency you will build and the more confident you will become when you're outside of your comfort zone. And to me, this is the best definition of mental toughness, (laughs) being comfortable, being outside your comfort zone. It's okay to feel scared and nervous. You just have to harness that fear and challenge yourself to push through because that's where the good stuff happens. And finally, you've got to do the work. Stop making excuses and get to work. The only way to get good at doing hard things is by doing hard things. The only way to develop mental toughness is to do hard work and develop your mental toughness. Stick with it. Push through difficult situations. Be willing to do more than the next person. Look, developing mental toughness is not about eradicating your weaknesses. And I know a lot of people think that I cannot be weak and that is further than the truth. We all have weaknesses and we all have emotions that hold us back like fear and intimidation, but that doesn't mean that it stops us from doing things. So don't eradicate your weaknesses, and don't be cold hearted toward yourself or others. The negative self-talk isn't going to get you to where you want to be. You want to instead develop self-awareness and dedicate a cultivate and sorry, dedicate and cultivate an I can do anything mindset. It's about persevering in the face of adversity. You need to take on every challenge that life throws at you with curiosity. Why is this happening? Resolve. I will get through this in self-compassion. Even if it doesn't go that well, I'm still worthy. I'm still a good person. I still love myself. It's about taking risks and building your confidence. The more you practice being mentally tough, the tougher you will, be, you will get. Okay, so that's my answer so, to the question. Uh, so just to recap, have a positive mindset, believe in yourself, never be a victim, challenge yourself and do the work. In closing, I will leave you with my favorite Michael Jordan quote. He said, If you are trying to achieve, there will always be roadblocks. I've had them. Everybody has had them. But obstacles don't have to stop you. If you run into a wall, don't turn around and give up. Figure out how to climb it, go through it, or work around it. I hope that was uh, useful to you and inspiring. Thanks for the great questions. Please send them over to me. I'm happy to answer them on the show. I hope you have a great rest of your week. And I will see you at the next episode of Reflect Forward.